0: Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to the I Bounce Back podcast. This is your host, Indra.
1: When you say, you know, I was in a cult, there's immediate judgment there, right? People immediately think you are an insane person.
0: Daniela Mastaniak-Young was born a third generation member of the religious cult known as the Children of God it is notoriously known for its unconventional or criminal practices including forced polygamy child marriages and widespread pedophilia when daniela was 15 she was excommunicated from the cult and that meant she had to move to the united states alone and rebuild her life there she actually succeeded. She graduated college and joined the US Army. And today she lives in Seattle with her husband and daughter. And she's a co founder of a company and also a motivational speaker. This is episode 17 Daniela Mastanek Young Getting Out of a Cult.
1: It's been very interesting as I start speaking about the cult, because when you say, you know, I was in a cult, there's immediate judgment there, right? People immediately think you are an insane person. And so one of the big differences, you know, is when you're born into it, like that is all you know. So it's like even trying to get people to kind of understand how foreign their version of a normal life is. You know, so when I talk about my my cult upbringing to people, it is super foreign to them. But when they talk about you know their first day of kindergarten, <laughs> um, that is just as foreign to me. And when you're so so, that was kind of the you know the challenge of of growing up being born into something like that. Now, when you're third generation, so my mom was born and raised in it. She gave birth to me when she had barely turned fifteen. So I was one of the oldest, you know, first, third generation members in this cult. Most of my peers were second generation, which means they still kind of had family on the outside. So when they wanted to leave, they could go back to grandparents, for example, who had lost their own children to a cult and were generally very happy to have a grandchild that they didn't know, you know, return to them as a teenager. My grandfather was the accountant for the entire cult. You know, my uncles and aunts and almost everybody was in the cult. So it was a whole different kind of experience um, from when I was 11, deciding I'm out, I need to make a plan to when I was 15, figuring out how to actually get out of there.
0: If we go back to your childhood and your childhood memories, how did your daily life look like? You did not even go to a regular school for a very long time. You did not even live in the United States. Right.
1: Um, so it, it was, you know, the the cult Children of God. It was uh, started in the U.S. So it's basically American founded by an American, kind of started in that sweet spot of the, the big hippie movement here in the 60s where everyone was looking for something new. And then basically in the 70s, when things started heating up in the US for cults, um, the the leader who had established himself as the prophet, you know, got all these revelations from God that they needed to move to th- essentially third world countries and spread out all around the world. So, you know, I was born much later in the late 80s and I was born in the Philippines. So American mom, uh, single because she was quite young. Uh, so I was an American born abroad, and I grew up with this idea that I was an American, but yeah, definitely um, never came to the U.S. till I was 14, huge culture shock. But our lives growing up, you know, we lived in communes. When I was very small, we lived with one or 200 people. My parents were always kind of quite high up in the leadership structure, and so we, we were involved in um, a lot of the production or the adults in the commune I lived in were involved in a lot of the production of the cults, like literature and film and, you know, brainwashing tools. Um, and we, we didn't go to school. So we, we essentially never left the commune unless we were doing, you know, these community service projects and quote unquote missionary work, which was kind of the overarching excuse for why we lived in these countries and how we, uh, Fundraise to get people to support, essentially our, our commune lifestyle, but we we had like schoolhouse kind of stuff. Um, most of our teachers were, you know, sixteen to twenty year old women who had never finished their own educations, and with whatever, you know, super religious books. So we used different like Amish homeschooling programs or Mennonite. Some of these these other groups in the U S that keep their children very separate for religious reasons and don't believe in evolution and all that kind of stuff. So So
0: we, you you know, we would learn to, how to read and uh, count. (laughs) That was about it. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Um, how to read, how to count,
1: you know, our founders version of history and which was very different, uh, from, you know, what we've all accepted as, as reality. And definitely not much in the way of science uh, or even math. Um, And I do remember, like, from a very young age, my mom, you know, when I was about three or four, teaching me to read and telling me, you know, Daniela, the only thing you need in life is someone to teach you how to read and everything else you can teach yourself. And I, you know, when I look back at everything as a whole, I always feel like my part of my drive came from that. Um, and then also like I was, I was that kid that asks why 500 times a day that was always questioning, like all I wanted to was to be left alone to like read books, all of these things we tend to love in children in, uh, in the modern world, but in my world, you know, where we weren't allowed to read any books other than the Bible, we weren't allowed to ask why, um, it was, it was pretty harsh, uh. Childwise, and you know, there was, of course, as is kind of usual in all these situations, there was a lot of corporal punishment, a lot of control, and then, you know, this this cult specifically, uh, the founder, they um, almost all cults uh, get involved in really weird sex stuff, and in this case, the founder chose to sort of differentiate himself by starting off with religious prostitution as a way for the young women to bring more people into the group and it eventually really digressed into a lot of like pedophilia for God and incest being preached as okay. And all of this different stuff. So there it was definitely like pretty dark moments in a uh, childhood for a lot of us. Mm-hmm.
0: Probably by now many people know that this cult practice sexual abuse and child abuse there are so many media reports about the children of God. But how was this issue perceived in the community? Because I think the fact that the cult had to leave the the US because of the abuse spoke volumes already.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, the thing is with groups, right? So, and this is one of my big focuses in what I do today, but you know, human beings want to be a part of a group, and they want feedback from other members of the group that what they're doing is okay. And we love that sense of camaraderie we have with other people who think and believe like us. Um, and we honestly, we can see this kind of mindset happening in many parts of the world right now. Um, And then from there, once you add on isolation, which cults do very well, right, a lot of Individuals in abusive relationships do this, too. Once you add in isolation and then the fact that nobody is willing to speak up and to question and to stand out from the crowd, you can you can literally justify anything. And so, of course, it, it started off slowly, right? Like, he took him almost 20 years of having established himself as the, the prophet, his unquestioning authority, his ability to speak to God... And at that point, you know, anything he came out with was a new revelation. And there were always some people that that would be the break for them, right? And they would realize, like, no, I'm not, you know, sending my 12-year-old daughter to this old man, and they would leave. But from the inside, those people were seen as the backsliders, the people that didn't have enough faith for this new revelation of God. And it was just like... A completely different point of view that they believed so completely and so fully that this man was the prophet of God that essentially anything he said to do even if it sounded crazy you just had to accept it by faith and you know for those who know about like Judeo-Christian tradition like the Bible is full of that right where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son literally kill his son in order to prove his fealty to God And so any kind of, you know, intelligent, dynamic leader can use texts and stories like that and twist it to uh, define whatever they want to define. And then, you know, kind of interestingly enough, they eventually they changed all of these and they put in all these policies in place to where we don't believe this anymore or we don't do this anymore, but it was all presented from the perspective of, not because it's wrong but because the outside world doesn't get it which essentially meant not that much changed for those of us that were growing up deep
0: inside
1: these communes it was just much more well hidden
0: as i understand you were sexually abused as many other children in the cult did children try to speak out against the abuse how was it perceived and was everything based on fear and simply brainwashing that it was somehow linked to religion and religious beliefs?
1: Uh, so a little bit of all of that, right? So when you're, you know, I, I definitely suffered my share of, of abuse growing up, but you don't really no like you know it is wrong, you know you hate it, but you don't know its abuse if it's never ever been presented to you like that. And especially if it's been presented as this is God's will, this is love. Um
0: did it always so, like feel that maybe something is wrong with you. I've read that a lot of children like blame themselves that it, Yes, wrong. for sure.
1: Um, And especially when you're brought up in this world of everything, everything is about God and having faith. And if you are, if you are having any kind of emotional problem, that means you're doubting God, right? It's not you're depressed because you're being abused or you're nervous because you're being abused, you know? So most of us grew up with kind of like all of these different nervous tics, right? All of these behavioral problems. But I think for, for so many of us, it wasn't, it's not till you get away and you start to realize what a normal childhood should have been like, what a normal life uh, should have looked like. And there's so many of us that are going through figuring all of that out now, right? And kind of actively engaged in, in sorting out our traumas and realizing what all came together. And then, you know, on top of that, uh, to your question of if people have tried to pursue their abusers, some of them have, um, one, uh, successfully very recently, you know, brother and sister got their father, um, jailed in England for, uh, for pedophilia and incest. But Generally, the way it worked, you know, they all the cult members were operating under, you know, adopted Bible names. So essentially all these people are operating outside of their countries of citizenship under fake names. And between that and statutes of limitations that have passed and honestly that there is not much of a of a political push or any kind of interest in helping children from cults. Um, mostly we don't have that much success when we do try to go after, um, people that have historically abused us.
0: Do you have any contacts with other members who managed to escape the cult, just like you, as I understand the cult still exists, but it just operates under a different name, right? Um, so it still
1: exists, but around 2009, it mostly kind of fell apart So, it's these days, it's more like an online church. The current leaders still, you know, do their stuff. Some people still send money to them. But there's not this, you know, military structured system of 10,000 people living all throughout the world in communes the way that it was for 40 or 50 years. So, the majority of I, I would say at least 5,000 children that were born and raised in the children of God are no longer associated with, with the cult. And we do have a lot of contact. Um, we have, you know, sort of online support groups where kind of what I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of us are are working through how we can understand all of the traumas that we suffered, how we can move forward. and And there really quite is something to having that group of You know, there's only those 5,000 people in the world that can really understand our lives. So having that connection, I think, has really been healing for a lot of us.
0: Um, What was your understanding about the outside world when you were living in the cult? And how did you explain yourself the fact that the outside world had such negative views about the children of God?
1: Um, So, you know, any view of the outside world I guess it was a mix of like you know we we watched some American movies mostly from like the musical era so I'm this very random 33 year old that knows like all of the musicals that our parents and grandparents knew and none of the movies from my generation um so we, we kind of had this very nice, rosy, you know, 1950s view of America, which, of course, we were then told was very, very evil by our founder. And then we had sort of the experience of whatever countries we lived in. And so for me, the majority of my childhood was spent in Brazil. Um, and we would go out from time to time and interact with the, the local population enough to where I learned to speak Portuguese, um, which I still do today, and you know enough of enough of the culture to absorb some of that but i mean we spent a lot of time talking about how we weren't a cults and why the outside world viewed us so badly which kind of in hindsight or to a person from the outside it seems very obvious that if you have to spend that much time talking about why you're not a cult you're probably a cult, but when you're uh, when you're there, when you're in the middle of it, uh, that's all you know, and you you come up with all of the great reasons why why you're not a cult, why you're special, why nobody else gets it because they're not God's chosen ones, and um, you just go on living in that way.
0: I have read somewhere that the 9-11 events changed the way you saw the cult and perceived the cult. And you started seeing these unhealthy patterns.
1: Yeah, so that was, you know, a really big moment in my life. Um, Obviously, I've, you know, written and published a a story about that. Um, But essentially, I was 14 years old, we were in San Diego, California. It was on my first visit to the US. So here I am, you know, 14 year old teenager. I'm dealing with this idea that I'm American, but then having this incredible culture shock with arriving in America. And we were like, things were starting to loosen up because in America, there aren't a lot of giant properties with high walls around them the way there are in third world countries so we were starting to sort of see and be seen and interact more with the outside world just because of the way that that was and then 9 11 happened and you know never forget it was the first time I ever saw live news on tv like I didn't even know what live news was and I, I came downstairs and the television was on and I thought it was a movie. And I was watching, you know, this tower fall on replay and all these announcers talk about it. And then the second tower hit. And that's when it became obvious that, you know, this is an attack. This is not an accident. This is something terrible. And there's all of this horror coming in from the television screen, but our reaction you know the commune that I was in the people all around me was it wasn't happiness but it was definitely praise God this is God's will this is the promised punishment on the evil people of America and I of course you know that was all I knew to think but it felt weird just almost in the same way as like the sexual abuse feels wrong when you're a child, no matter what you're told. And the TV stayed on that whole day, just like probably every other house in America. And we kept watching it. And I kept hearing this word religious extremist. And somewhere in that day was sort of planted the seed that I don't think it's right you know, that 3000 people are dead. I don't think that's God. And if we think that, are we also religious extremists? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, obviously didn't happen all in one day, a 14 year old did not figure all of this out. But I described that as kind of the crack in the brainwashing for me, who was already a kid that wanted out, uh, wanted to go to school wanted a different life. And that but that was the first time I really started to realize, like, is our whole theory wrong? Are we wrong? Are we a cult? Um, Although I never used that word for many years to follow.
0: So was it around that time when you started contemplating your escape?
1: Yes. I mean, I, you know, it's funny, I always describe that I think I was I was born an atheist, just not in a world where I even knew that was a choice. Um, so I, I always questioned, I always fought against it. Um, and when I was about eleven, was when I decided, like, I'm, I'm definitely out of here. I just have no idea how. You know, I might have to wait till I'm eighteen, um, and I can, I can be on my own because like we mentioned with the with the multiple generations I didn't really have too many options that were obvious to me when I was 14 and especially you know a few months after 9-11, we left the US and we we headed to Mexico and I was I was done I was done living in foreign countries I just wanted to be an American and I had had you know started to have these very disturbing realizations and so I of course, did have to go with my family to Mexico, but that was when I started kind of putting together my my rebellion and my process to get expelled slash escape from that life.
0: And your mother eventually decided to help you to leave the community, right?
1: Yes, she did. Um so my mother, who was, you know, growing up, she was one of the first children born in the children of God. She was like among the first like 10 or 12 children. She grew up in, you know, in the prophet's home. She was married to him. He was about 75 when she was 13 um, in this horrible ceremony that he did with a bunch of young girls. Uh, the, the man who was my biological father was 43 when he got her pregnant at 14. You know, she, she really had this crazy life. She had seven kids in 14 years before she was 30 um, and then went on to have she has eight kids like seven or eight stepchildren. Um I have 24 siblings. Oh, wow. It's 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 all over the map, but my mother was still, you know, at the time when I was 15 and I was ready to be gone, my mother was still very much, you know, in the leadership in in the in the theory of the cult, but she knew she wanted me to not be there. So I started started doing these, doing these rebellious things that was getting the attention of the cult leaders that eventually got me sort of like kicked out, excommunicated. And I kept trying to, to maybe take it back to apologize. I was scared, of course, of the outside world. And she kept giving me these little nudges. And she was eventually the one that found the you know, a stepsister, her husband's, one of her husband's elder daughters that I literally didn't know at all, but who lived in Houston, Texas outside the cult and was willing to take me on at 15. And then she encouraged me to, to go very secretly, because if anyone had known that it would not have been good for her.
0: Today's episode is presented by State Bags. State Bags makes beautiful, well-made, inclusively cool products while using the power of business to give back to shift the narrative around social injustice. For every state bag purchased, State hand delivers a backpack packed with essential tools for success to an American child in need. But their commitment goes beyond simply a material donation. State Bags has your back. And part of the commitment is making a difference in local kids' lives. To get you ready for your commute or wherever you are traveling next, State is offering our listeners 15% off their next purchase at statebags.com using the code Bought. That's 15% off your next purchase using the code POD at statebacks.com. Statebacks, they have your back. Let's come back to Daniela's story. When she left the cult and moved back to the States, she barely had anyone to help her out. She knew she wanted to get an education and live a normal life. But even to get accepted to school was not an easy task for her. How did the first steps of independent life look like for Daniela?
1: You know, my my favorite moment for this story is we showed up to school and i literally had a american passport and a social security card that was 100 percent of my documentation in life and showed up in the school district where we lived and they said we're sorry we can't enroll you in high school you don't exist <laughs> and then they still came back and said but in texas you know, homeschooling is illegal. You have to be enrolled in school within the next 5 days or we have to call the cops. So basically, we can't enroll you here, but you need to go figure it out somewhere.
0: Wow. And so how how did yeah. that work?
1: <laughs> I mean, um fortunately, you know, I did have my my older stepsister who you know, she had just left the call about three years before. She knew a little bit about the world, but her boyfriend was, uh, you know, this big Texas guy who'd been to co- uh, high school and college and was like, look, there's a system. Don't worry about it. So we, you know, we had to go up to basically the the very highest level of city school government and just beg them like this is a 15 year old child who is dying to go to school there's a way to figure it out to let her attend high school. And so they did, you know, I ended up taking, I think about 22 tests to try to test out of, um, all the, all the high school classes I had missed. Cause I was already, you know, 16. I already should have been halfway through high school. Um, obviously there were some like reading and Spanish, et cetera, that I was more successful on. There was some like science that I very much failed. Um, and then I, you know we we managed to squish the last uh all four years of high school into two years for me and uh fortunately with like a lot of help i i was able to get that done and and working on the side to support myself of course at some lovely minimum wage jobs and then right at the end of high school this was kind of a big moment for me because we had to write uh, an assignment for class, but it was an essay you were supposed to be able to use for college applications. And the essay prompt was what makes you different. And I had just began to come to this realization that, Oh, this, you know, wonderful, lovely missionary group that I grew up in was really this evil religious cult. And so I wrote this one page essay called, I was raised in a cult And got a lot of support from the school, uh, got a lot of scholarships out of that and sort of became the tool of how I wrote my way out of just a life of poverty and got the opportunity to go to college.
0: I guess the time when you left was psychologically extremely hard because when you were in the cult, you had family members surrounding you all the time and the decisions were made for you by the cult leaders. And when you left to the United States, yes you got your freedom, but at the same time it was a major, major change and you got so many responsibilities. How you were dealing with all these new things, new responsibilities.
1: Yeah, and you know it's so important that you picked up on that because that really is you know was a huge thing for me and people when they're wondering why people stay in situations that are negative right especially something like a cult you know one of my responses is cults do some things right that really appeal to human beings right which is that that group that sense of purpose that sense of community and when all you've known you know I went from The smallest place I had ever lived was about 18 people living together to living in an apartment essentially alone. You know, my sister worked nights at a bar, spent most of uh, her time with her boyfriend in a different place. Um, So she was hugely helpful to me, but she definitely wasn't around. I was almost 100 percent on my own. And that was very difficult and very, you know, I I sort of got into this almost split personality split personality life where in school I was perfect you know all I'd wanted to go to school and I showed up and I never skipped class and my teachers loved me and that was all I wanted right was the the attention and the love of my teachers Um, I found out later in life that straight A's in children from troubled homes can be another sign of depression just like acting out or drug use or any of that which made so much sense to me um, but, you know, and outside of school, I was, you know, smoking and working all the time and definitely engaging in, in risky behavior, not the ideal uh, human in any ways. And as a, you know, 16 year old, I was just struggling to regulate exactly what you talked about, the, the freedom that was all that I had wanted my whole life with. How depressed I was how hard it was and how much I didn't fit in you know I don't think I made a single friend in high school I had no way to talk to people it was just it was very very lonely and it's what started about 10 years of pretty deep depression and suicidal ideology for me was when I left the cult
0: was it the feeling of the lack of community that pushed you to join the army
1: I definitely think so. <laughs> um, you know, looking back, it's very interesting. At the time, you know, I I became interested in the military, I would say, on 9-11. And then in high school, when I didn't know how I was going to co- go to college, I was definitely exploring the military. So I I kind of like was always familiar with it. And then I was graduating in 2009 with a degree in English and literature was one of the worst economies we'd seen. And I think part of it was, I i don't know that I would have known how to operate on my own outside some kind of a structure. You know, I'd gone from a cult, I'd gone straight to school, and then another school where there's still people telling you where you should be, what you should be doing, what you should be studying. And I look back now and I don't know that I would have known how to like apply for a job, build a life, all of that on my own. And I, I knew about the military and even more, I knew about this officer program where I could go in and, and make money and be a leader and, and have them train me in a career and it, It just all seemed so very perfect that even though I knew I would go to war and that wasn't specifically something I wanted, it just made sense to me at the time.
0: And you were very successful and you were sent to Afghanistan, which, of course, had a very intense environment and the war is extremely traumatizing experience to anyone. But you had your childhood trauma as well. And at some point it was too much to handle for you right
1: yeah so you know I, I I was very successful in the army I'm very competitive and so as soon as I decided you know in school they judge you on grades so I was the 4.0 valedictorian and in the military they judge you on physicality so quit chain smoking, start working out, learn to run really fast, which I did all of these things, which kind of brings you a lot of glory and attention in, in the army. And so, and you know, I was, you know, intelligent. I got into military intelligence. I was good at my job. I was good at public speaking. And so I, I had a lot of this like outward success. Meanwhile, I was still very, very depressed. And when I ended up going to war, as you mentioned, you know, there's there's the trauma of war. There's, you know, I lost a lot of friends. I heard them dying on the radio. Um, I was also a woman in Afghanistan, which, you know, as has very much come to light in recent years, the the sexual assault and sexual harassment of women in the military, especially while they're overseas, is is really bad. And so I, I definitely got to a point on my first deployment as a, I was a first lieutenant, I was 24 years old, and I just was like, this is too much. It was triggering all of the early childhood abuses and stresses that I had never dealt with. I'd never done any kind of mental health. And I climbed up a guard tower and thought I was going to just uh, take my life that day. That was a uh, yeah, very very low point for me.
0: What did stop you from doing that? Um,
1: you know, I think there was a, there was a couple things. It's sounds weird to say, but I wasn't. First of all, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that any of my options would actually work. And when you're that depressed, you know, the only thing that seems worse than ending it all is making a failed attempt. Um, But also, you know, I was I was struggling with friends that had just been killed and survivors guilt. And so while I wanted to die, I also was holding myself back because obviously I had just survived when other people hadn't. Um, and always, you know, in my in my many moments of of low suicidal ideology, I remembered this thing my mom had told me. And I don't know if her statistics were right or not, but she said that a doctor had told her that 95% of depression is chemical, but you always think that it's because of your life circumstances. And so anytime you're super depressed, especially if you're suicidal, you should just go find a doctor and talk to them about it because odds are they can help you. And so I always feel like that's, that idea stuck with me. And whenever I was very, very close to um, taking my life several different times, I would call someone over to stop me and then I would go find a doctor. And so that's when I started um Getting mental health treatment. And I did that all through that deployment, my second deployment, because I ended up doing six years in the Army and going twice to Afghanistan. And it really ended up, you know, being a good thing for me because military psychologists are used to dealing with people that have extreme trauma, even though my situation was unique to them. It was a lot easier to find good mental health support in many ways in the military than it is on the outside.
0: I find it interesting that despite the fact that you had suicidal thoughts, they sent you to Afghanistan for the second time, knowing how intense the environment is in the war zone, I find it a little bit odd
1: yeah, and you know, some of that has to do with the the us military has really been trying to destigmatize mental health. And of course, to do that, they have to be willing to work with people and try to heal them and not um, just stigmatize them for seeking mental health. And then I would say the other thing is that uh, the reporting requirements, have the caveats of if your, if your suicidal ideology is coming from sexual assault, they don't have to report it to your command. And so I think both of those things worked in my favor.
0: So what was your path to healing after you returned home to the States? You know, I would say, Okay. So,
1: so two different times, you know, I came back to the U S the, after my first deployment, and I was very, very just angry. You know, you, you spend a year at war and it's, it's a really weird thing, even if you're not actively fighting, which I, I was, you know, part of these uh, women going and and pioneering, doing combat patrols. But for the most part, I had a desk job as a, as an intelligence officer. But you, you have this realization of, like, you just lost a year of your life, supposedly in defense of this country. And then you come back and you're trying to, like, figure out if it was worth it. Um, and And a lot of people's everyday problems can just drive you insane. And so... I think between, you know, I had, I had come so low that I realized I needed to keep seeing actual mental health professionals, but also being surrounded by, you know, finally sort of finding this group of people that were all going through the same things. Um, I remember I had a a friend, a senior officer who did, did this tough love thing with me. And he literally told me, you know, Daniela, get over yourself. You're not as different as you think you are. And that was a really big moment for me and to where I realized that I had been sort of giving myself permission to be isolated because obviously no one could understand me or to be depressed because obviously I had such a worse life than everyone else. And when he said that to me, I started to realize like, oh, he's right. You know, everyone has been through pain. Everyone Needs to connect with other people. And so I should start sharing myself and reaching out and connecting with other people. And that really, really helped me. You know, I, in my opinion, I think most suicide and suicidal ideology comes from loneliness. And you can be so lonely when you're surrounded by other people. And so being able to make kind of for the first time in my life these really true connections with people really helped me It made staying in the army actually great for me. It made, you know, the going on the second uh, deployment where I was in a community and working with people and had friends, you know, it was a whole different uh, scenario than the first time. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, still realizing the second time, you know, it was still another situation for me where now I was a captain, I was essentially powerful, respected, and the the triggers and the traumas of being at war and being in that sort of over-sexualized and over-violent environment uh, was just, personally was just too much for me, and I had already started kind of realizing that there was a lot of of groupthink and things that go on in the military that while I loved being a part of the military, I I found to be problematic for me. And so that was sort of a whole different thing coming back the second time and realizing that for me, it made more sense to not be an, an active duty soldier anymore.
0: So you decided to leave the army what was next? How did you find your new purpose? Yeah, you know, I I left the army
1: and I had also met and married a soldier, uh, my husband, Tom, who's a helicopter pilot. He flies for special operations. You know, He's done it his whole life. He's retiring this year. And we had a baby and I got out of the military and I immediately went into a career in security physical security and this is kind of you know it's the process that all military u.s military veterans go through when they leave the military it's basically you know we spend all this time saying what does my military resume say that i do and then how can i find a job doing that in the outside world But we very rarely go through the process of saying, what do I actually want to be and do with my life? And, you know, I started realizing, like, most of us didn't get to pick our job in the military, which means just because you did a job, even if you did it for 20 years, doesn't mean that's the career that's suited to you. And so I was in in physical security at a well-paying job at a large company, and I was, totally miserable. Um, I hadn't stopped thinking about what my mentor had said to me about all of these experiences I've had in my life, all of these things that I've learned. Um, And I was really starting to get this drive that I think maybe all veterans also go through of like, I want to help people. I want to keep helping people. When you When you leave a group, um, and I found this to be true both of the cult and of the military, when you leave this group that has this overarching purpose that controls your whole life, you miss that. You miss that sense of purpose so much on the outside world. And so that was when I essentially left my job and started trying to figure out who I was supposed to be when I grew up.
0: Your journey was definitely challenging and it had a few bumps in the road. Um, how do you feel? Are you on the right track right now? Um, I would say I'm getting there. (laughs) You know, I,
1: it was interesting because I started, you know, the first thing I did was started speaking. I said, okay, I love, I love speaking in front of crowds. I did that in the military. I did that growing up. Um, I have great stories to tell, but I didn't know kind of what the, the point of them was. Um, so I did a lot of speaking. People are very happy to put me on stages, but I would say for the past three years, it was, you know, what's, what's the common thread in this? So I'm getting asked to speak, you know, as a, as a survivor of something or to a group of military wives because I'm a military wife or to a group of, you know, earlier this year, I did a, a talk in Brazil in Portuguese to a group of intelligence and security professionals down there. Um, but spending a lot of time figuring out like, like what is the thread, uh, of my life of my insights of what I want to write about. And even with, um, the the memoir that I'm writing right now, it's, you know, it's not let me, a random person that you don't know about, tell you the story of my life because I had an interesting life. I found that it all, everything I do pulls together around these threads of as human beings, we're attracted to groups. We really can't survive without groups, but then our very nature of wanting to be surrounded by groups that are and people that are just like us. We become insulated. We lose the ability to question, and we start creating these group think environments and these mini cults or mega cults, kind of all around us. And so, my my work that I do now, um, you know, I work with companies to help them kind of do culture design for, you know, how they're. Their groups can operate in these very strong ways, but not be overcome by groupthink, which kills innovation and doesn't give you the, the benefit and the profit of having these great teens. And I, you know, along the way, I discovered the field of organizational psychology, which I knew nothing about. So I'm preparing to start a master's, hopefully get a PhD in that. Um, cause I have all the anecdotal evidence of how it works. Now I'm, you know, I'm excited to sort of dig into the very high levels of research. And then, you know, like I said, this, this memoir, the, the writing thing, I think has been a, a really big part of it for me where, you know, and I think for so many, um, abuse survivors, it's, you know, you, when you can't do anything else, you can write, and through telling my story and now through starting to write my story, I've been able to connect with so many other people that have survived such incredible things and make these really deep connections and other, other memoirs from other incredible women have been sort of these roadmaps for me on how to survive and succeed against the odds. And so I'm hoping that in many ways my book can also be that for other people.
0: Well, wow, it's incredible how many different things you experienced in your life and even like you've managed to change your career several times. It's, uh, it's really inspiring. What kept you going during the hardest times in your life?
1: It's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I guess I would say you know, for a while, I definitely was fueled by the desire to just prove to everybody that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to be a statistic. So in the, in the cult, you know, they always tell you that the outside world is horrible and nobody's going to love you and you're going to fail. And I just was like, no, I'm not, you know, I'm, uh, I guess a, a little bit of pride that I wanted to, to prove to people that I could make a success out of myself. Um, and then i i just also think you know fascination with the world and as a kid that grew up never being able to question all of a sudden i can read anything i want i can question anything i want now with the careers i've built you know i have a podcast where i just have other people tell me the stories of their life and i get to ask them whatever questions i want about you know culture and how it affects them and so just Really being interested in how amazing the world is, I think, has kind of always motivated me just in different ways throughout my journey.
0: Thank you to Daniela Mastanek young who shared her incredible story. For more information about her, please visit iBounceBack.net, where you can find a blog post about Daniela and all previous episodes of the I Bounce Back podcast. Tune in to listen for a new episode in two weeks. We locked eyes and I realized that I was looking at this grizzly bear and what I thought was just, oh my God, this is a terrible situation. This is the worst case scenario. Thank you for listening. Have a nice day and bye.